Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, we have a special guest. His name is Ashik Ali. He is the chairman of Slascom, which you might be wondering is Sri Lanka Association for Software Services Companies. That is the industry association, outsourcing industry association in Sri Lanka. So, you know, as we are doing on this podcast, we are touring the world, going to all of the major and minor outsourcing destinations to hear about what they're doing in that country and what outsourcing is actually doing for the country and its people. So it's a great conversation with Ashik. Uh, We, of course, do a high-level overview of what Slascom is all about, uh, the scene in Sri Lanka, and what the industry is up to. We also talk about the recent political upheaval that Sri Lanka, you might have heard in the news, was going through. Uh, So it's a really wide-ranging conversation, and of course, we touch on AI. So it's a great conversation, uh, and as always, if you want any of the show notes, you can find those at outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start or somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish Inside Outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Ashi, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm all right, Derek. How are you? Thank you for having me here. Very good. Yeah, absolute pleasure. So, Ashi, welcome to the show. Can you first explain to the audience what Slascom is and uh, and how you add value to the community? Sure. So, Slascom stands for Sri Lanka Association for Software and Services Company, short form Slascom. Uh, it's basically an industry association uh, representing the IT and BPM industry in Sri Lanka, uh, both uh, domestic uh work as well as those who are doing domestic work as well as exports uh, we have close to about 420 plus members uh, you know who employ close to about 145,000 uh, workforce um, the industry has been steadily growing uh, uh, you know double digit every year uh, so the association 
um, represents uh, these companies uh, uh, in, in, in developing talent, in policy matters, uh, in generating business for the country. Fantastic. Well done. And you, Ashit, you are the chairman of Slascom at the moment. Why, what, what, what is your role within the organization? Uh, so we have a board of directors of 12 and I'm the current chair. Each chair ha uh, is elected for a year period. Um, and um, we have five focus areas uh, or impact areas we call. Uh, one is global trade and investment. The other is talent development. The third is entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, fourth is ESG and fifth is policies. So my role as uh, the chairman, uh, I direct the board of the other 11 uh, in executing some of these strategies and uh, programs. And we also have a permanent corporate office manned by about 25 people uh, with its own executive director, which actually does most of the implementation, on the ground implementation work. Fantastic. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I do this podcast and we've now had um, guests from all over the world and it's incredible to see how established outsourcing is in so many nations. And of course, you know, Sri Lanka is, is no different, but it has the association that is overlooking the industry, similar to NASCOM that represents India and IBPAP, of course, that represents Philippines. Um, how, from a, from a bird's eye view where you are at the moment, how would you describe the outsourcing sector at the moment? Generally, it seems to be on a, you know, on a up ramp right across the world. Are you seeing that in Sri Lanka as well? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we've been having ever since GFC in 2009, where we saw a slight dip. Uh, we've been uh, having year-on-year -year growth of about 13 to 14 uh, percent, and that accelerated uh, even more during the COVID. As you know, in all parts of the world, I think in supply-side countries when digitization uh, really accelerated uh, with the COVID. Um, we do see a slight dip now, but we think that it's a, a very knee-jerk reaction in uh, markets elsewhere, especially the markets where we get business from. Some of them are going through recession. Um, so there's a bit of lull. Uh, but um, as far as the industry here is, um, even during those lulls, the customers are looking for more efficiencies, uh, more cost arbitrage. Um, so the industry, especially supply-side countries, are still seeing uh, uh, sustainable growth. Yeah, there's always going to be fluctuations in the in the minor cycles, aren't there? But uh, generally, it's a it's an upward trend. Uh, it, you know, I I'm based in the Philippines, and the outsourcing industry here is about 30 years old, and maybe you know about 20 years in, they felt that it was becoming a sunset industry in that it it had run its course and kind of everyone was now outsourcing and, and sort of this is it. Um, but I think it's really taken off again. Did you also see that, you know, as the industry got to maturity, um, then everyone sort of took it a bit for granted and, and it kind of um, plateaued a bit? Or have you, you know, just seen it kind of continue upwards? Um, I would say it's continuing upwards, but it's also getting transformed. Right. It's uh, I mean, in the industry in Sri Lanka is also close to about 25 plus years. Uh, but we did uh, uh, 10 years, 15 years ago is very different to or what we're doing now is very different to what we did then. Uh, companies are now looking more uh, solutions, more co-creation, more innovation on the table, uh, automation. Um, so those things are evolving. And with that, new skills demands are also evolving. 
Um, so it's no longer what mm. we did as back office, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, the complexity is is going crazy, isn't it? And um, how how do you think the industry is responding to that? Is it sort of being dragged along by force or, or do you feel that actually the industry is really keeping pace and is actually kind of pushing a lot of this innovation? Uh, I would say a bit of both. Um, when you have uh, captive uh, centers here, uh, especially anchor captives, who are very progressive and are using uh, shared service centers or delivery centers here, they anyway bring in uh, the global trends and the practices in. Um, so, and, and, and those third parties who are servicing large corporations also have to step up. Um, so it's a bit of both. You have to, uh, you know, be in step with what is happening out there and also, uh, you know, look ahead uh, as to what's around the curve um, and, uh, you know, start developing some of the in-demand skills that are going to come around the corner. I mean, uh, AI and ML is a great example as to how things will change in this uh, space uh, in the coming years. Yeah, there's a big, and that's a huge conversation. We might touch on that a little bit later. Otherwise, I think it'll just <laughs> absorb the entire conversation. But um, you, you know, with a lot of the outsourcing, popular outsourcing destinations, you tend to find a lot of the regular big name brands there, you know, the teleperformance and the global brands where they just really distribute their staff across the world. Uh, what can you say to the homegrown Sri Lankan businesses and, and talent base there? Do you do you have a sort of uh, a part of the industry that is um, Sri Lankan originated? Absolutely. I mean, our 420 members are made up of startups to very large companies both homegrown companies which are exporting out or servicing local markets as well as uh, captive centers both medium size as well as large um, just to explain a little bit more sri lanka is uh, not a scale player it's a more niche uh, a certain type of work player and as a result we attract a lot of mid-tier companies looking for uh, high quality talent access at that level and we find a lot of these from the Scandinavian region, Nordic region, uh, some of the European countries coming here. And these are typically, you know, 300 to 500 man setups, not not literally 10, 20,000 people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, do you do the full gambit, of course, you know, everything from customer service to sales to IT support to technical, things like that? Where, where would you feel the sort of sweet spot is for Sri Lankan capabilities? Uh in software, um, we have a long heritage of what we call product engineering. Um, it comes from the fact that our attrition rates are very low compared to the region. And as a result, you can attract good talent and retain them uh, for you know three, five, six years. And that lends very good to doing product engineering where teams need to be uh, cohesive and, and, and co-create together. Um, so that, that's a sweet spot for Sri Lanka. And in the BPO, KPO, we have a very strong focus on finance. Um, Sri Lanka is predominantly outside of UK. Sri Lanka has been uh, producing record number of UK qualified accountants ever since 80s. Um, so we have a very large pool there. So FNA work um, is kind of dominating in that. In the, in the FNA space, there is a lot of you know research type of work, uh, things like revenue cycle management for their healthcare, but all around the finance uh, domain.
Yeah. One of my uh, best friends from school, actually, he was uh, Sri Lankan and his father was an accountant. So that's only anecdotal, but maybe there's a bit of a trend there. Um, and, you know, I, I spent about 10 years of my life in London and, you know, now being in the Philippines, I realized like the sort of cultural connection between the UK and Sri Lanka and India is so much greater than the connection with the Philippines, for example, and sitting in the Philippines, you know, there's a sort of cultural and trade connection uh, between the US, which is far more stronger. Um, you know, have you always seen that, of course, with the sort of trade routes and the, you know, the general sort of trade and cooperation that you see a lot of your, um, you know, kind of business interactions more with the UK and Europe? Uh, that's true to a great extent because uh, more mostly for historical reasons. I mean, we were under British rule for, mm. for a while and we are still part of the Commonwealth. Uh, our laws and education systems are still very much uh, based on English uh, practices. Uh, having said that, uh, US is the largest exporter for us or the market, largest market for us because some of the larger companies who serve the market are serving US customers. Uh, but if you take the number of clients that we serve, it's probably, I think, UK will come second and Australia will probably come third. Both are in the Commonwealth uh, group of companies. Right. And what is first? That's the US then? Yeah? That's right. Uh, in it's less number of companies, but large companies servicing US clients. So in terms of revenue and headcount, uh, US would be our largest uh, customer. Yeah, it's hard to beat the US, isn't it? Just because of its just economic might, generally, they, they tend to be the biggest customer to a lot of people, don't they? Right. But, uh, incredible. And what are you seeing in the in the sort of grassroots of the industry? Then you say you have about 400 members, I'm just going to read off your site. I'm uh, uh, how many people are you employing at the moment? Just over 100,000 sort of thing? Uh, no, about 144,000 people. Um, that split about 37,000 in the BPO, KPO industry and about 107,000 in the tech space. So we are fairly tech heavy, unlike the uh, Philippines industry. A lot of, yeah, a lot yeah, of software yeah. engineers right. and IT support uh, people in the talent base. Right. And so the industry, you know, domestically, is it seen as a, as a, you know, as a high paying, strong part of the economy? In the Philippines, for example, it contributes about 12% of the GDP and it's the single biggest uh, sector. W what does it look like within the Sri Lankan economic context? Uh, well, our contribution is close to about 4.3% of GDP, uh, both domestic and uh, exports uh, combined. Uh, it's, it has not occupied uh, the, uh, the attention space that it should uh, until very recently. In the last five years, it has kind of matured to be uh, having the focus of the government uh, to be developed as a trust sector. Uh, but before that, you know, uh, because we have a large manufacturing base in apparel and uh, things like tea and rubber and industrial goods, uh, a lot of and that and that creates mass employment as well uh, that kind of occupied but you're absolutely right uh, this on a dollar basis uh, per head it has the potential to create a very large amount of revenue 
uh, uplift a lot of people into the middle income category um, and, and especially aspiring young youth uh, you know who want to get educated and mm. hold on to good jobs uh, so it's becoming more and more attractive and the government is also now uh, paying a lot more attention giving it priority and investing on uh, things like education uh, around this sector and as you mentioned at the beginning th- there was you know a, a benefit uh, unfortunately as a result of covid um, things you know interest in offshore staffing seemed to spike um, I think across the world as as every business moved to remote and and also you know businesses were under stress there were a lot of people exploring remote work global employment uh, and sort of you know um, entering this kind of freelancer gig work economy which can then lead to more sort of formal outsourcing and things like that so the real grassroots stuff do you see a lot of that in um, Sri Lanka uh, you know, whether it's sort of informal employment, gig work, up work, things like that. And, you know, do you see that as sort of a, a nephew to your industry or quite separate sort of thing? No, absolutely. It's part of the industry and it gives a, a different, uh, uh, what do you call it, an entrepreneurship kind of track for uh, people to explore. And we do find smaller groups of people uh, getting around and doing this type of gig work. And over a period of time, they mature as well. I think in global platforms also, you see that mm. people acquire uh, small jobs, but eventually it becomes, the per- there's, there's always a team behind a person in most of these platforms now. Uh, so, uh, but it's not really as big, uh, I would say, in countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh, which actually is, this part of freelancing community is actually equal or more in, in the, 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 the formal sector itself. Uh, here it's uh, still a very small percentage, under $100 million we estimate. Uh, but remote working, um, there's a different take to that. Uh, uh, I think the ILO calls it virtual migration. Uh, this is essentially people who hold jobs in big companies but are joining mm. from here. Uh, they're not doing gig work. They actually are employed but sitting in, in our country. Um, so uh, it's a very different setup. Uh, and we have that as well, uh, because uh, as you said, the COVID kind of transformed the way uh, how work and where you work from, uh, you know, as a paradigm shift. And uh, now we find, especially in the mid-tier, uh, you know, 20-man, 30-man setups, uh, you know, wanting to do this kind of remote. Uh, so we have companies in probably Singapore or US or UK, uh, you know, having these teams in Sri Lanka. And funnily enough, sometimes yeah. you don't even find them interacting as well. It's all on a remote platform and, and, and they're de- delivering. They know that there are others. Uh, but we also see now things changing a little bit. I think globally that's coming. Now a little bit hybrid work is coming in. It's not all 100% uh, remote or work from home. So with that, I think the team cohesiveness and... Uh, uh, you know, creative, uh, collective problem solving, all that, because those are part of the Sri Lankan DNA, the industry's DNA. And trying to do that purely on a one-on-one remote uh, is not always the best outcome. Right, yeah. It, I, you know, I see all of this progress as only, it's, it's all positive, isn't it? And if, you know, a bit of part-time gig work or VAs and things like that, 
if they become a gateway to to just sort of economic opportunity in Sri Lanka that then leads to more sort of formal employment and and skill development and um, building teams there it's it's only a positive impact isn't it you know it's uh, it's it's fascinating to watch this develop absolutely um, i think there is a lot of uh, aspiration from young people uh, because this is an industry i think which has very low barriers to entry um, if they have the right type of qualifications or, or education and and the industry is also doing a lot more to onboard because uh, you need supply continuously and you need good supply uh, so we don't just rely on the education sector to uh, throw out people we actually get involved uh, in making sure the right type of people get uh, developed in the education sector so early on they get a, a good uh, awareness around the, the employment opportunities in this uh, space mm. i you know you mentioned and i see it on your website as well you uh, slascom is very involved in capacity and skill development I, I sort of see if I can sort of generalize the the mature outsourcing countries seem to be facing significant staff shortages, you know, in terms of skilled roles, in terms of the roles that the industry wants to head towards um, severe, severe shortages, whereas the sort of immature outsourcing destinations that want to get into it, generally, there's a very high level of supply. Um, what is it like with Sri Lanka for, you know, the, the skilled roles where the industry is heading um, and how do you see that skill development pipeline? Yeah, as I mentioned, we have been, um, you know, about 25, for about 25 years, it's been a more uh, complex kind of work that is going on here. Um, so mm. uh, that requires a little bit of a higher skill set. So this notion of, you know, a lot of people can just get in without the right type of skill and there's a, a supply uh, uh, excess. Uh, is not happening here. I mean, there are young people, sure enough, but they need to be trained and uh, brought in. And that kind of then constrains the, the supply side. Uh, and we are very cognizant of the, the quality that we absorb in because the nature of work that is being done for our clients. Uh, so I wouldn't say we are in shortage, but it's not like there's abundance of supply, which, you know, you can just go and hire and onboard for uh, low end type of work that's not happening here for instance we don't have yeah. significant yeah. contact center type of work uh, we don't have outbound sales type of work which is very predominant in some of these outsourcing uh, countries uh, Sri Lanka just doesn't do those type of work as well as been in the news relatively recently the sort of economic hardships faced by Sri Lanka and that caused a lot of little bit of political upheaval and you know sort of economic uncertainty and sh uh, fuel shortages how has that impacted things on the ground there and certainly you know for an industry that relies on 100 percent uptime and business continuity and, and things like that what's it been like on the ground for you there um it did have an impact uh, because this is a very people-centric business uh, and uh, all that happened in the political and economic sphere uh, had a direct impact uh, on the people. Uh, but our country, uh, you know, if you look at history, we've been through a 30-year uh, war. Then we had, uh, then we had uh, also uh, an Easter bomb attack uh, in, in 2019. 
so and then the covid happened so there are the country has had its own challenges uh, and uh, what it has done is the people here uh, especially young people are a lot more resilient to pick up the pieces and run with it um, so i'll give you an anecdotal example uh, we had a conversation with uh, a, a very well known swedish investor in sri lanka and he was telling that he was on the ground and what he saw he was telling if that were to happen i mean if there were no fuel and there were shortages and uh, people had to get on to the queues to get these supplies for their daily essentials um, things would come to a halt in in some of the countries he's been to but here you get people while being in these lines uh, you know firing up their laptops and getting connected and still being in client meetings and you know after a while it becomes a little bit normalized to carry on with no matter what uh, you know so uh, things kind of tend to yeah, uh, move yeah move, move even if you but the industry also put a few measures i mean uh, we because the government understood what's the importance of this sector and we had severe shortage of uh, foreign exchange and this was an industry which was bringing foreign exchange uh, continuously and there were very little mm-hmm. physical disruption of getting physical goods out of the country like you know the shipping and everything when they got uh, affected this is a, a industry which delivers everything on the internet so a very little disruption in that so the dollars kept coming so they immediately uh, offered us priority fuel we put up a industry fuel depot so that our companies can access that uh, we uh, worked with some banks and created an attractive solar loan so uh, employees who are working from home can uh, quickly buy Uh, rooftop solar systems so we put in a few measures uh, kind of mitigated uh, the impact uh, some of them even brought their employees together into hotels which had you know uh, continuous power uh, and they were able to work as a team so various things that the companies did as an organization and as an industry uh, which mm-hmm. kind of kept the uh, the delivery commitments to our clients uh, going Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? You know, and as you say that, it, it is fascinating to think that you know these industries can become major, major industries and become a major, uh, you know, pillar of the economy. And as you say, they're fairly light in terms of uh, infrastructure requirement. You know, you need you need electricity, you need an internet connection, um, but beyond that, you know, you don't need all the heavy infrastructure, the capex, uh, and sort of. you know environment that a lot of these other industries rely on and all the interconnectivity of of things um they're quite it's quite an incredible industry isn't it and relatively independent and sort of asset light uh if only you can sort of rely on the you know uh, electricity and an internet connection it's uh, fascinating to see absolutely i mean uh, direct it has positives and negatives to be very honest uh because the positives is what you spoke about the negatives is it's uh, it also makes it very easy to lift and shift very quickly so if you know if we had failed in our commitments yeah. uh, uh you know com- customers would have taken their business that much right, more easily right. to another country yeah 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 no you're right and you know part, i suppose it's not an achilles heel but it, the industry is unique as well in that it's so reliant on its people isn't it you know and then you know i say it's an achilles heel because then you've got to make sure that the people are engaged and they're on your side and they're motivated and they're happy um 
you know, unlike other industries where, you know, if it's sort of factories and automation and machinery, uh, then things can sort of be a lot more um, kind of automated, can't they? So every industry has its uh, nuances and idiosyncrasies, but it's, it's fascinating to see these new industries pop up, which are service-based and largely sort of digital and kind of esoteric in nature. Absolutely. I think also COVID uh, kind of set the stage, I would think. Um, if you from, I mean, our country went into lockdown in March 2020. Um, and I think by year end of 2020, um, you know, people were then looking at the stress factors of working from home and, you know, the team cohesiveness and whether they're actually getting the productivity. Um, so, uh, you know, companies kind of paid a lot more attention to employee well-being and they created a lot more uh, uh, programs for their welfare and, and uh, collaboration um, and then eventually evolved into uh, hybrid uh, work models as well. So I think that post-2020, um, uh, this whole attention to the people and their well-being started um, globally, I would say. And, and that kind of set us also the crisis we had in 2022. Uh, so we were prepared uh, actually to handle some of these uh, distress and stress factors uh, that the employees would feel uh, during you know, times of uh, hardship. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a truism, isn't it? That, that the industry has to look after its people. And again, not wanting to sort of oversimplify things too much, but if you're in a factory, you could potentially, you know, and, and it's someone running a machine, you could potentially have that person pretty unhappy and kind of coerce them to do a reasonable job and get a result from the machine. But when the people are doing the work and they're also doing high complexity work that takes the sort of, mental and spiritual sort of um, investment of the people, then you really need to treat them well. They need to be feeling good about their work. They need to be feeling fairly compensated and safe and warm. Um, there's no way of getting around it, is it? Which is which is a win-win for everyone in the industry. I, I still find it amazing that people external to the industry have this, you know, um, sense that people are you know, being mistreated within within the outsourcing industry. It's kind of crazy in concept, isn't it? Very true. Um, yeah, in fact, you know, there have been a lot of uh, social media chatter on it being an exploitative, uh, but it's really not. I mean, it's uh, it's mm. actually uplifting. I mean, in Philippines, it's 10% of GDP. I think in India, it's uh, close to about 8 or 9% of GDP. It's created a new... Uh, middle class of uh, people and it's it's also not made unlike in a factory setup as you say it's not just the shareholders or, or senior management who's uh, benefiting out of this it percolates right to the the, the, the entire workforce that economic upliftment right? because pay scales and and uh, facilities and welfare and everything is right across the board for them to be able to do a knowledge type of work mm. Yeah, and you see that, you know, you see the skill and capability capability escalation as well, don't you? You know, as we said, sort of 20 or 30 years ago, the industry was pretty much limited to basic call center functions, whereas now the industry is, you know, into whatever, you know, advanced 
um, IT and IT services and AI and, uh, you know, um, sort of, you know, any any sort of high level industry. And that's because the sort of industry generally has kind of escalated in its capability. And, um, of course, it's bringing all of the individual contributors, the workers with that journey. It's it's very powerful. And it's it's so funny, isn't it? Any any uh, any outsourcing country realizes the value of of these industries yet it's the sort of it's the people sitting in the us and the uk that have this sort of uh, you know misunderstanding that that it's it's doing them a disservice it's it's kind of crazy yeah i think uh, there's also conversations now uh, around esg compliance uh, so with that i think there will be some sort of uh, formal assessments of uh, service providers uh, eventually and uh, that i think will kind of give the reassurance uh, to the clients in these countries uh, that employees are being well looked after good people practices are in place good governance uh, you know all that and good environmental practices as well um, uh, you know are in place for in this industry um, so we, we we are already seeing those uh, conversations happening um, and I think globally, this is now being called as impact sourcing, and uh, and and people are paying a lot more attention. Uh, as you say, it's being done in the supply side, but there is this misnomer in the demand side that it's not being done. And uh, uh, and and I think things like mm. compliance and uh, formal certifications will kind of you know um, lay uh, give give that assurance to people. It's not. It's not exploitative. No, absolutely not. And anyone close to the industry knows that, but it's just getting that message across to to you know the observers, really, isn't it? Uh, actually, you know, on that ESG and CSR and um, you know, like companies are really investing a lot into this now, and it, it's a it's for mutual benefit. It's it's to get you know the best out of the team and blah blah blah, but. Um, is it being recorded globally? So, you know, are all of these ESG efforts actually sort of being aggregated and recorded, do you think? And, you know, by Slascom, for example, or any of the industry associations to actually then be able to acknowledge, you know, this industry has created X amount of jobs. It's educated so many hundreds of kids. It's, you know, these things. Have you ever heard of any project where these things are um, you know, collated and assessed? Yeah, I mean, um, I would know about other countries, but here we are working with uh, exter external partners, especially the multilaterals like the UNDP, the UN Global Compact, uh, essentially to, we're setting two, we're doing two things. One is, as you rightly say, we're setting a baseline as to where it is. Uh, what are those practices? What are the measurements that companies are, doing at this point in time they may not actually think of these as esg but those practices are are, are there right it's not just framed in an esg framework uh, so that baseline work as well as uh, a lot of education around this uh, because as this is a people's business uh, and that whole practice everything has to percolate to the people as well uh, so a lot of education as to what esg is and esg practices and how you progress towards a certain compliance levels that part is being also done and then setting the baseline um, i would think that uh, in the next seven years uh, because there are 
uh, hard set SDG goals in uh, for 2030. And uh, over the next seven years period, uh, things will mature to a level where there will be uh, robust data and, and compliance certification uh, by country um, coming into place. I think there are in other industries, like if you take uh, industries like aviation or certain types of manufacturing, uh, energy utilities, uh, I think they are, they are a little ahead of the game on this in terms of getting the compliances because I think they are also heavy polluters, um, heavy environmental impact, people impact oriented business. Um, here, the services sector is kind of now only getting into this play. Um, and uh, yeah, I think in the next uh, seven years, as we move into hard targets, um, these things will become a lot more formal and there might be global indexes and rankings uh, that will identify or recognize countries for their uh, contribution. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good to see. And Ashik, you know, you mentioned earlier AI and this inevitable sort of march towards uh, more automation, machine learning, and and kind of computer capability. A lot in the industry are sort of worried about this. I think specifically for the high repetition sort of mass handling kind of industry, a lot of those roles could be either removed or significantly diminished. Um, how do you see that for the Sri Lankan outsourcing industry generally? What, what are your thoughts on AI? Um, yes, certainly there will, AI is going to disrupt. And as you rightly say, it will be this very low-end repetitive work that will get automated very fast. Uh, and as I mentioned before, Sri Lanka has not played that space in terms of uh, a portfolio of services. Uh, there has always been uh, an element of taking on a more complex work. And there, I would think the AI would be looked at more as an augmentation tool rather than a, a displacement tool. Um, so um, for us, with a limited population of only 20 million and a, only 144,000 workforce, which we hope to grow uh, to about 200,000 people in the next two years, um, it, it kind of... Um, it's not going to displace jobs. Uh, it's probably going to uh, change the job roles and uh, we'll certainly have to invest in retraining some of these people. Uh, but we are in that space where AI can augment what they are doing uh, and, and actually go up the value chain in the work. For instance, in, in, in uh, chat GPT and all that, now a lot of the companies are already, I know this is a buzzword, prompt engineering, but a lot of the future work here is now uh, getting centered around prompt engineering. And, uh, you know, that, that how soon you adapt some of these emerging, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, points in technology uh, will kind of determine uh, whether you are going to uh, displace people from their jobs or actually take them up to the next order of uh, uh, value creation. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to discern whether this specific technology is is just like any other tool that's come before it, and it's going to augment people's capabilities, but everyone's going to be fully employed and we're just going to be doing more amazing stuff. Or, you know, is this the final tool that will actually finally displace people and 
you know, there's then nothing to do. I, I really struggle to sort of believe that it is the latter. Um, you know, I think there's always going to be work to do in the world. Yeah. Yes, I, I think I don't think that's going to happen in the immediate future, although there's a lot of doomsday uh, messaging out there. Uh, yeah, eventually, I think there will be, uh, you know, a lot of this thing. And, and probably the nature of work might at that time be very different to what the nature of work today is. Uh, we don't know, right? Uh, I'm talking about a 20, 15, 20 year horizon. Uh, it will be a very different generation who is going to come and their values and ethos on what work is also would be very different. Uh, and you see that with every generational shift. Yeah, uh, yeah. You see what, what work means to people. Like we saw what this whole great resignation and great reshuffle, all this is just people having a very different take on what they should be doing. Yeah, oh, it's incredible to see it evolve and it seems to be evolving so quickly now doesn't it it seems to be like an error is is only five years now, these days instead of an error being about 50 years in in the past you know that's true it's, that's uh, it's incredible anyone, anyone who has young children teenage children will know firsthand how things are changing how rapidly things are changing yeah and that's you know that's a difficult question for the kids isn't it you know yeah. what do you what do you educate them in exactly. because they have to be so the 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 level of um, redundancy of knowledge is so vast now, isn't it? You know, if you learn any skill, it's it's sort of outdated. So it's it's more just learning the foundational capabilities of learning, isn't it? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of uh, things will come from the creative side of uh, the human uh, capacity, right? Things like you know mundane, repetitive things will go away, and I think a lot of creative value creation will come in place. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. And, you know, I, people, again, people, I think, wrongly say that, oh, my gosh, the AI and automation is going to be, first of all, the end for outsourcing. And it, it's like, why would it threaten this industry any more than any other industry? And, you know, I tend to tell people that it will threaten industries globally equally. And, you know, if it's going to remove all the truck drivers and checkout clerks in the U.S., then if anything dramatic happens, then it will affect the global economy equally, won't it? Um, you know, I just don't think that the the outsourcing offshoring industry is any more susceptible. It's, uh, uh, but it will yeah. be fascinating to see. Fully agree. So, Ashley, thank you so much. Really fascinating conversation. Um, as, you know, the chairman of Slascom, do you have any asks of the audience or if people want to know more, um, you know, what What can people do to find out more about what you are doing there at Slascom? Um, yeah, I mean, we are present, I mean, we have a website, slascom.lk, which is fairly up to date. Uh, we have our social media channels. Uh, we run six uh, marquee conferences which are presented to the global audience. Uh, it gives a flavor of where, what current industry practices and uh, what we are doing in terms of uh, service portfolio. Uh, so as I said, uh, it's a country uh, where if you want to have a very collaborative team, an extended team, uh, which brings a lot of creative, uh, and I, I know these are cliche words, uh, but it's truly is if you talk to our clients, uh, they may be a very large client who probably have a 10,000, 15,000 man setup in Bangalore or Hyderabad, uh, but they would also have a 400 man setup in Sri Lanka for a very different type of work. 
Uh, and that has been the sweet spot. So any and I, and I think uh, in the future, more and more clients are looking for that type of work. Smaller teams that would really give some disruptive uh, services and deliveries uh, to their uh, business problems. Uh, and that's where uh, Sri Lanka uh, tends to shine. Uh, I'm sure there are other companies, uh, other countries as well. But that's our sweet spot. And anyone looking to for that type of uh, work to be done, um, you know, uh, drop us an email. Uh, we are at info at slascom.lk, spelled S-L-A-S-S-C-O-M.lk. Um, and we'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you. That was Ashik Ali. He is the chairman of Slascom in Sri Lanka. As always, if you're on any of these show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to send us an email, just email us at ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.